0: Good morning. Everybody doing all right? All right. Hey, open your open up your Bibles to Mark chapter eight. Mark chapter eight. We're going to be there today. As you're turning there, there was uh, there was a young woman who was uh, applying to go to college, and she was filling out many many applications like. Many of you have who have attended college or those who are about to start attending. You know, she, she applied to many different schools. And uh, on one particular application, she felt that she was really answering all the questions well and that she was putting her best foot forward. And uh, she really sensed that she was filling out this application that, that she would look rather appealing to the college to which she was applying. And then she got down to one of the final questions and it asked, Are you a leader? And her heart sank. She got really uh, frustrated right then and there. Because she recognized that if she was being honest with herself, she really wasn't a leader. She wasn't a leader. She was more of of a follower. And so she reluctantly, but honestly wrote no and began to explain that she was not a leader. She was somewhat of a follower and that was her kind of personality, kind of style in life. And she was disappointed she mailed away the application. Well, a few weeks later, she got uh, a response from this college that she had applied to and she opened it up and says, Congratulations, you've been accepted. She couldn't believe it. She went on to read uh, some of the reasons why they had accepted her. And it said it said this right after the congratulatory section, it said, Dear applicant, a study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have one thousand four hundred and fifty two new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. (laughs) Jesus in Mark eight. 31 to 38, wasn't looking for leaders. He wasn't looking for leaders. He was looking for followers. He was looking for some who would get in line behind him. He was looking for some who would imitate his path. You know, there's not a week that goes by that I don't have a discussion with another Christian, whether in this church or a friend or just someone I know, uh, where they, they some, somewhere in my week they say, you know, I want to grow in my faith. I want to become a follower of Jesus. I want to become a disciple of Jesus. I want, to, I want to mature in my faith. Not a week goes by that I don't hear that kind of a comment or have that kind of a conversation with someone. But you know what? Oftentimes, those people who are saying those kinds of things to me are very unsure of what the next step is. They know they want to grow. They know they want to follow. They know they want to become more mature and and go deeper in their walk with Christ. But they don't know what the next step is. They really don't know what the next step is. Today, we're going to look at some of those next steps. Today in the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, we're going to identify some basic steps that each of us can take in becoming a closer follower of Jesus Christ. The title of my message today is, How Do We Follow Christ? How do we follow Christ? Turn to Mark chapter 8, we're going to begin in verse 31 and go through 38, you'll notice we're backtracking just a little bit in our last study in Mark, but it will give us some context for verses 34-38, to which we're primarily going to focus on. Mark 8, 31-38. It says this, "...and He, Jesus, began to teach them," that is, the disciples, "...that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again." And He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him. But when Jesus had turned around and looked at His disciples, He rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind Me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When He had called the people to Himself with His disciples also, Jesus said to them, Whoever desires to come after Me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake and the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of Me and My words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of Him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, guide us, we pray, as we read Your Word, as we begin the process of meditating upon it, considering its truth. I pray today, Lord, that You would teach us how to follow you, how to follow your Son, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Once again, verses 31 to 32. It says, And He began to teach them, Jesus did to the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke this word openly. Now, we've already been through verses 31 to 33 in our previous studies in Mark. But I bring these verses up today to give us some context as we approach our main section of Scripture in verses 34 to 38. Particularly, I want you to pay attention to the theme Jesus is developing here. The theme of physical death. Suffering and physical death. Take note of that in verse 31. He says that the Son of Man is going to be given up to the elders, chief priests, scribes, to all the religious authorities in Israel. And He's going to be killed by them. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark, folks, that we find Jesus making it explicitly clear to the disciples that He is coming to die. This is the first time you find this in the Gospel of Mark very explicitly, very clearly Jesus says, I'm coming to die. Now, Peter and the disciples don't like that idea. They had been daydreaming about being authorities in Jesus' Kingdom. They assumed that Jesus was going to stop Rome and insert Himself to the throne. The King of Israel. And they wanted to be His emissaries, His ambassadors. His right hand men. How could they rule if Jesus was dead? That didn't make any sense. So Peter takes Jesus aside to correct Jesus' foolish thinking, so he thinks. And we pick up at the end of verse 32 to verse 34. Then Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around, Jesus did, and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And when he had called the people to himself, verse 34, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus didn't take too kindly to Peter's rebuke, did he? In fact, In Mark 8.33, we see Jesus about as angry as you'll see Him in the Gospel of Mark. His teaching about suffering and death was so important to Him that anyone who tried to dispute it or to negate it would be harshly, harshly reprimanded. And that's precisely what Jesus does with Peter. He says to Peter, Get behind Me, Satan. You are not thinking like God thinks you are thinking like mere mortals think. Get behind me, Satan. Now that phrase, get behind me, Satan, is significant. It's a Greek phrase, episo mu. And Jesus uses this same phrase in verse 33 when He says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. He uses it again in verse 34 when He says, whoever desires to come after Me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the same Greek phrase. How significant is that? On the one hand, in verse 33, Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan, as if to say, Move out of my way. You do not have the plans of God. You do not have the plans of God in mind. You have the plans of men in mind. So get behind me. Get out of my way. Put yourself behind me. And then Jesus goes on to talk about what it truly means to be put behind Him in verse 34 when He says, whoever desires to come after Me, whoever desires to get behind Me, this is what you need to do. It's truly a game of follow the leader here in Jesus' thinking. He wants them to get in line. Peter and the disciples with Him. And I ask us the question, do we want to follow Jesus? Do we want to fall in line with Him? The next verses from verses 34 and following are some of the most precious teaching in all of Scripture about what you can do to follow Jesus Christ. Take a look. Zero in again on verse 34. It says, when He had called the people to Himself, now He had gathered the crowd that had amassed around them. Uh, They're most likely actually slightly outside of Israel. They're still up in the the northern Gentile regions. And uh, and Jesus Jesus has now amassed a crowd and He brings the crowd in along with His disciples and He says to the crowd and to His disciples, He said to them, whoever desires, anyone who desires, to come after Me, to get behind Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. The first instruction Jesus gives about being one of His followers is to deny oneself. Now, we're going to begin to mention six steps that we can do to better follow Jesus in our lives. And this marks the first step. In fact, let me bring up our first point. Followers of Jesus deny their own self-interests, rights, and aspirations. Now, you receive an outline Uh, I want everyone to take notes today if if you're able to because there's going to be an exercise at the end of this message and it's going to be helpful if each of you are are filling in these blanks. Followers of Jesus deny their own self-interests, rights, and aspirations. That's what it means to deny yourself. And we've spoken about this uh, many times at Coast. I, I know I've made mention of it a lot because I'll be really honest with you. The concept of denying personal rights is something that's very near and dear to my heart. I see that theme. I see uh, that conception of Christlikeness as being one of the most fundamental elements of the Christian life. And I've said this before on a couple of occasions. If I were to sum up Jesus' person and ministry in two words, it would be, deny oneself. That's what I would say. That's exactly what Jesus did. He came to earth and He denied His rights. He did not need to do what He did and yet He willingly subjected Himself to your sin and to my sin and died on the cross. He did something He did not need to do. He denied His rights. He denied His self-interests. He denied His aspirations. Folks, this first step, I'm I uh, i can I'm quite confident almost every one of us battles this first step. We want what's ours. We want to be significant. We want our own selfish desires, our self-interests. We want to exert our rights. We want to have our goals. We want to attain our goals. Um, you know, the picture of a follower of Jesus Christ is someone who does these things. Um... And I'll I'll be uh, I'm, I'm bragging about my wife here, but that's a good thing, right? Uh, when I think of someone in my life who I look to to emulate on this point, I look to my wife. You know why? Because my wife, uh, after leaving college, she went on to start acting, and she quickly rose up in her acting profession. Um, she was recognized by a number of her acting coaches and teachers and fellow students as being one of the best actresses that, that they had seen. And she did work that was incredible. And that was, that was one of her dreams, one of her goals, to be an actress. But you know what? Uh, one day when we started talking about having a family, started talking about having Bennett, um, having you know starting a family, my wife, like that, said, it is way more important to me to be a mom than to be an actress. It is way more important to her to be a mom than to be an actress. And she willingly gave up that, that field. She hasn't given up entirely. She's been able to do a few things since then. But, but I saw my wife give up one of her greatest dreams, one of her greatest self-interests. At least give it up in terms of devoting full-time hours toward it. She willingly set that aside and said, I would much rather be a mom. I would much rather serve my son, raise my family. And honey, I I love you. And I I commend you for that. And you ladies that have done that as as moms, and your job is not insignificant. I know each of you. I know many of you have had aspirations and goals and dreams that that have, for a time have been set aside for your kids. You know what? That's honorable. That's Christ-like. You're doing exactly what Jesus would have you do. Precisely what He would have you do. Secondly, if we looked at verse 24, 34, you'd notice again that He mentions deny yourself and take up your cross. Take up your cross. The second uh, aspect of a follower of Jesus is one who is willing to incur humiliation, suffering, and even death. Now folks, uh, don't don't... De-literalize, don't de-emphasize the meaning of taking up your cross. So often we relegate it to, well, you've got to suffer for Christ and you gotta, you know, be you get a little suffering in your life, a little sorrow, a little pain. No, no, no. When Jesus said, Take up your cross to his disciples, he was very, very vividly saying, You be prepared to die on my behalf. Be willing to die on my behalf and all of the suffering that might precede it and all of the suffering that might precede it. You see, folks, in the first century, the cross, the symbol of the cross, we wear it on our neck, right? We have a nice necklace with a cross and we, you know, we kind of look at it today and go, well, that's really a nice necklace. That's really pretty. You know what? If you had worn that necklace in the first century, people would have looked at you with astonishment. They would have looked at you and said, what are you doing wearing a symbol of death? A symbol of criminal execution around your neck. They would have looked at you with bewilderment. They would have thought you insane to have a cross around your neck. Now, I don't think it's insane today. I think it's, I think it's a beautiful expression of our love for Christ. and our, it, We're recognizing the symbol of the cross. But back in that day, it was a symbol of death. It was a symbol of of criminal execution. And Jesus tells the disciples, be willing to take up your cross. They're saying, what? What are you talking about? The cross is reserved for the worst of offenders. The worst of criminals. The lowliest of people. Scorned by their society. And Jesus says, yeah, pick that cross up. Pick that one up be willing to pick that one up. Followers of Jesus are willing to incur humiliation, suffering, and even death. Are you willing to do that as a follower of Jesus Christ? Folks, you know, we we think, well, death, come on, doesn't happen. Did you know that more more Christian martyrs, more Christians have been martyred in the last 100 years than in the first 1900 years of the Christian church? That's a fact. More Christians have been murdered, have been killed for their faith in the last 100 years than in the first 1,900 years of the church's existence. Um, You know, we, we have a lot of freedoms in the United States of America for which we are grateful. We are unique in the world. The rest of the world is, is, very un, is very unlike the freedoms that we have. And there is uh, there's coming a time. You know, we, we never know. We never know what's going to happen in the course of history. There's coming a time and a day when, when even this great nation, with the freedoms that we have, will be suppressed. And there's potentially coming a day when Christianity will be an illegal expression of religious worship. And we need to be prepared in those times to answer the question, Am I willing to die for Jesus Christ? Verse 35 to 38, Jesus elaborates further on what it means to follow him. Verse 35 to 37, excuse me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Let me pause on these three verses and I want to reread it. I want to read it one more time, but only this time I want you to look up on the screen and I want you to see the significance, the, the predominant use of one particular Greek word in this text. Take a look. It's the Greek word suke, which is often translated life, soul, or self. So let's read it again. For whoever desires to save his psuke will lose it his suke. Whoever loses his suke for my sake in the gospels will save it the suke. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own suke? Or what will a man give in exchange for his psuke? And that is not an easy word to say. P. S, man. You are supposed to pronounce pronounce both there. Say psuche. Yeah, no, it's not easy. Exactly. Tom, say psuche. All right. That man, he he's got it down. This is significant, folks. There's a word being used here four times uh, in directly. An additional two times, it's implied. It's a pronoun. It. Okay, So we have six instances here in which Jesus is using the same word. You're going, oh, that's interesting. What does He mean here? As you can see, obviously, this, this Greek word suke translated as life in verse 35, and soul in verses 36 and 37, is a very important word in Jesus' teaching here. But what does this word mean? And why is it translated one way in verse 35? And why is it translated in another way in verses 36 and 37? To be brief, um, this word is a very difficult word to translate in Greek. It's one of the more difficult words in all of the Greek New Testament to translate. The word can have a number of different uh, meanings in Scripture and does. it even in the Gospel of Mark, it has a couple of different nuances throughout the Gospel of Mark. I want to walk us through... uh, Bear with me. This is a little bit more of the academic side of things, but you know what? It's going to help us understand more about following Jesus as we get through this. So let's take a look at five different uses or meanings, interpretations of the Greek word "suke" in the Bible and in the Gospel of Mark. First, it can mean person or people. Literally, uh, in Acts 2... Forty-one. It talks about how 3,000 souls were added to the church, were added to the kingdom of God. So it's just in reference to 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ. A second use of suke is the soul. That is to say, the life-giving or animating element of a person in distinction to the body. Now, this is not as common of an of a, of a interpretation of this word as you might think. However, it is used in Scripture. Um, in Genesis 35.18, it, uh, it speaks of one who has died and their soul has remained, but their body has gone into the ground. Um, and there's, there's others there that we could go over, but not in the Gospel of Mark is it used in that sense. A third option, and also not as likely, but at times it can be used as the heart or the inner person, or the center of emotion. Um, Jesus says in Mark 12.30 uh, that we're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's more of a, of a seat of emotion, perhaps. Also in Mark 14.34, Jesus says, My soul is sorrowful even to death as He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so, it wouldn't be right to say that his immaterial soul is sorrowful. It wouldn't be right to say his, his self is sorrowful. It would be right to say his emotion, his, his heart, his inner person is sorrowful. A fourth option is the physical, earthly, human life. Now, this is in distinction from number one, in that it talks about the life as it is, in our human earthly existence, um, we see this in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, in Mark chapter 3, verse 4, Jesus talks to the Pharisees and he says, Is it better to save life or to kill life on the Sabbath? And the word life there is soul. He's, he's basically saying, Is it better to let someone die on the Sabbath or is it better to try and help them in their time of need, in their earthly life? And finally, it can refer to a heavenly kind of life. This is very difficult to uh, explain, but I'm, I'm using words as best I can. A heavenly life, a true, abiding, or rich experience of eternal life. Now, I'm emphasizing it's the life experience of that. It's having the life of a heavenly, true, abiding, kind of a rich experience life in the Kingdom of God. Or potential for that now i've kind of uh, tipped my hand a little bit with some of the re- uh, verse references i've given as far as how i understand mark eight thirty five to thirty seven but let 's look at it nevertheless and see how Jesus is using this I propose this kind of an interpretation for mark eight thirty five to thirty seven let 's take a look for whoever desires to save, or we might say preserve, it's a much better sense, preserve his human life, option four of Suke, will lose rich heavenly life, lose out on. Not 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 we're not talking hell here. We're talking lose out on a richness of one's heavenly life. Verse and continuing, but whoever loses his human life for my sake in the gospels will save or preserve rich heavenly life. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own rich experience of the heavenly life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his rich heavenly life? I've given you the code there to waver between options 4 and 5 in the text. And folks, this is why in your Bibles, you're seeing the same Greek word being translated one way in verse 35 and another way in verses 36 and 37. It's not uncommon um, for this word to be used in these different senses. And Jesus is certainly using them in different senses. And here's how we know that. Um, Take a look at the end of verse 35. Take a look at it carefully. If you look at verse 35 on the screen, it says, um, I'm sorry, go back just one more. Sorry about that. It says, but whoever loses his human life for my sake and the Gospels will save or preserve rich heavenly life. We know, common sense tells us, it must be taken in different senses. Because if it if it meant, but whoever loses his human life, for my sake and the Gospels, will save his human life, that wouldn't make any sense. Jesus would be suggesting that if we die in our earthly life, we will live in our earthly life. That's a contradiction. That wouldn't make any sense. So we know that Jesus here is using the word in two, at least two, different senses. Okay. Now, you're going, okay, not sure I can process this. Let's break it down bit by bit. Ready? First. For whoever desires to save or preserve his human life will lose out on rich heavenly life experience. Folks. Number three in our desire to follow Jesus. Followers of Jesus recognize the vanity of seeking earthly gain, power, and honor. Followers of Jesus recognize the vanity of seeking earthly gain, power, and honor. You know, Doug's message uh, last week, uh, he brought up King Solomon and all the accomplishments of King Solomon. And yet, after he had listed all of his accomplishments, Solomon said it's nothing but spitting into the wind. All my accomplishments. Nothing but spitting into the wind, He said. And and here we have that same sense. Jesus says, whoever desires to save or preserve his human life will lose out on rich heavenly experience. Folks, it's not about earthly gain. Following Jesus is not about earthly gain, getting earthly power, getting earthly honor. It's about denying ourselves. Moving on to the second aspect of verse 35, "...but whoever loses his human life for My sake and the Gospels will save or preserve rich, heavenly life." And once again, let me be very clear, we should not assume that Jesus is deliteralizing, that He's de-emphasizing the idea that losing your life means anything less than dying. That's what He's already said in verse 31. That's what he's already said in verse 34. It makes sense that that's what he's saying in verse 35. He's saying, look, as far as it takes, even unto death, on my behalf, whoever loses his life, as far as his human life, whoever does that for my sake and for the Gospel's sake, you will save your life. You will save your psuche. You will inherit a rich experience of life. suke, In the life to come. And so Jesus says, it's in effect He's saying, wait patiently for this. Don't seek the riches now. Wait patiently for them to come. Number four, patiently wait for God to reward their life of sacrifice. Followers of Jesus, patiently wait for God to reward their life. Of sacrifice. They're not interested in the here and now rewards. They're interested in what's coming rewards. And now we finish up with verse 36. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own rich heavenly life? In verse 37. Or what will a man give in exchange for his rich heavenly life? Jesus is saying, nothing compares to this. Nothing compares to this. No gain you have in this life compares to what the, gain, what the potential gain you have in the Kingdom of God. No gain in this life. No wealth. No car. No job. No goals. No aspirations. No self-interests. Nothing you have, nothing you have in this life, no matter how good it is, no matter how much you feel that you want it and you desire it and you need it in your life to, to make you happy, to make you feel blessed, Jesus says none of that is worth exchanging for the glory that I offer you in the kingdom, for rich, heavenly life. And so fifthly, followers of Jesus know that no earthly prize is worth exchanging for heavenly glory. Nothing compares to it. No earthly prize is worth exchanging for heavenly glory. And now we come to our final verse. Verse 38. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of Me and My words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Now, those are powerful words. Um, Those are, I'll be honest, those are scary words. Uh, John, The Apostle John, also uh, uh, certainly a right-hand man of Jesus Christ, uh, penned these words in 1 John. He says, And now, little children, abide in Christ... That when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Very similar uh, warning. You know, um, we're not talking. Uh, we're not talking about uh, unbelievers who are, you know, God's ashamed with them. No, we're talking about Christians who God is ashamed with. Particularly in the first John text. We're talking about Christians. John is writing to Christians, to believers, in and around the churches of Asia Minor, and he says, Little children, you who are little and precious in the faith, my little believers, my pupils, he's saying, those who are hearing my words, who have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are living the Christian life, little children, Abide in Him. Follow Him. Remain in Him. That when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Folks, uh, there is a very real uh, potential to feel shame before Jesus Christ on the Day of Judgment. That's a very real potential for all of us, including me. and I think, uh, I think on some levels, all of us will experience a degree of shame. On, 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 a, on some level, all of us, when, Christ, when we see Christ on the day of judgment, before the, the Bema Seat judgment, the place where all the Christians are judged, their salvation is secure by faith in Christ. They are going to be with God forever. But yet on that judgment day, when they come before Christ and when He examines their life, when He examines their works, when He examines what they've done, there's a very real potential for shame right then and there. And a potential for shame that, that lasts for a period of time in the kingdom of God. There's evidence in Scripture which suggests that, and I could point that out too if you're interested. But, you know, have you ever been shamed? Have you ever disappointed someone, disappointed your parents, um, disappointed your spouse? I've, I've experienced shame before. It is, it is one of the worst feelings in the world. You feel so ashamed. You feel so low. And you feel like you've, 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 you've you squandered what God had given you. You feel like you, you, you took the life, the loaned life that He gave to you and you just you ruined it. Are we a people who are prepared to be confident before the judgment seat of Christ or are we potentially looking at at shame before the Master on that fateful day? Folks, followers of Jesus, number six, prefer to suffer temporal earthly shame than have Christ be ashamed of them on the day of judgment. They would much rather receive shame in this life, humiliation in this life, public disgrace in this life for naming the name of Jesus Christ than to have Jesus be ashamed of them on the day of judgment, when he is assigning to us our portion of the rich heavenly experience in the kingdom of God. Nathan Schaefer of Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, meditating upon these words in Mark 8, he wrote, the, he wrote these, this quote He said, At the close of life, the question will not be how much have you got, but how much have you given, nor how much have you won, but how much have you done. Not how much have you saved, but how much have you sacrificed? How much have you loved and served? Not how much were you honored? In conclusion, followers of Jesus... Let's go through these one more time. One, followers of Jesus deny their own self-interest, rights, and aspirations. Followers of Jesus are willing to incur humiliation, suffering, and even death. Three, followers of Jesus recognize the vanity of seeking earthly gain, power, and honor. It's not worth it. Four, followers of Jesus patiently wait for God to reward their life of sacrifice. Five, followers of Jesus know that no earthly prize is worth exchanging for heavenly glory. And six, followers of Jesus prefer to suffer Temporal earthly shame than have Christ be ashamed of them on the Day of Judgment. Now you'll notice, if you pay attention to this list carefully, and I, I didn't get all six of them up there together, but look at it on your own, you'll notice there's, there's a combination of knowing, having perspective, and doing, having action. Knowing, having the right perspective, having the mind of Christ, and doing, having right action, emulating Christ's works. Folks, we want to follow Jesus. We want to become disciples of Him. Know and do. They go hand in hand. Some of us are good at knowing. We study a lot. We know the Bible well. We can quote Scripture. Got our theology down. All these things. We think, oh, yeah, I'm a good disciple. You know what? That, that's a component of it, folks. That is. But if you leave out the doing, if you leave out the action, if you're not denying yourself, if you're not taking up your cross, if you're not letting go of your rights and acting like Christ, your discipleship is half-hearted. It needs to be combined, both knowing and doing, as Christ would have you. So, my challenge to us is this. Closing exercise, folks. I'm going to give you three to four or five minutes or so I want you to take a moment to consider these six aspects of becoming a follower of Jesus. And I want you to put a check next to any aspect, maybe one or two, or I don't know how many there might be for you, in which you sense that you need improvement. I want you to identify, let me interrupt that one and say, I want you to identify, is it a knowing or is it a doing? And identify whether some of the areas of weakness all are maybe on one side or the other. Maybe you can find some balance in your Christian life there. Ask yourself, how can I go about improving in this area? I want you to take four minutes, five minutes, personal, quiet, and meditation asking yourself and asking God for wisdom, how can I improve in this very area? And finally, I encourage you to share your thoughts with a family member, a friend, an elder or a pastor who can help you grow stronger as you Walk with Christ, become a follower of Him. I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to, the, the the worship team's going to just strum on the guitar for a few minutes and let each of us consider these things as Christ would have us consider. It. Let's pray, Heavenly Father, Lord, we've 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 learned from Your Word now. We've studied it, we've meditated upon it. But Lord, that's that's an aspect of discipleship You're you're showing us. You're teaching us today. That's one side of the coin. And Lord, we also need to, to, to do. To be like Christ. To act like Him. And as we, Father, enter into a few minutes now of personal reflection, I pray that Your Spirit would speak to us. Show us where we lack. Show us where we are in need. Help us to identify how we can grow as we follow you. I pray that, Lord, that this would be a sweet time of reflection.